Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in the world of work and what kind of career to expect and prepare for when you graduate from college, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is a pathfinder within the digital economy. And she's the author of a new guidebook of sorts to help you navigate this economy. It's entitled Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. But before I introduce you to April Rennie, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that offers unique career insights and advice. Just check out the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew. Because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is April Rennie, who is a change navigator. She's also a speaker, investor, and adventurer whose work and travels in more than 100 countries have given her a front row seat to a world in flux. She's one of the 50 leading female futurists in the world, a young global leader at the World Economic Forum a Harvard Law School graduate, and a Fulbright Scholar. April is also a trusted advisor to well-known startups, companies, financial institutions, nonprofits, and governments around the world. Earlier in her life, April was a global development executive, an international microfinance lawyer, and a hiking guide. (laughs) As a certified yoga teacher, April can often be found upside down. And I kid you not, you just have to go on to aprilrinney.com forward slash handstands to see her doing handstands <laughs> all around the world. Oh my God. And most recently she added author to her many accomplishments. Her new book is entitled Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. April, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated there in Portland, Oregon and ready to go? I am. I have my coffee right here. Portland is a great city for coffee. And what a joy that people get to hear me say handstands before I've even said hello. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I, I didn't mention that, or did I? Yes, yes, yes. You're a certified yoga teacher, but you were doing handstands long before that. Long before. It's kind of signature now, but I learned them doing gymnastics as a kid and then they ended up serving me even better as an adult. I love that. And I also want our listeners to know, April, that I had the absolute delight to interview you back 
way back in late 2018. We are doing this interview now in mid-February of 2022. And because it was so eye-opening for me personally and is still to this day, one of my favorite interviews, I'm being 100% serious, and I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds, I've invited you back. And not to talk about your career, because we did that in episode 88, but instead to talk about your fabulous new book. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I still remember our conversation back in 2018 as well. And what a what a joy it was, but how you brought forth a piece of me that it's not that I didn't know it was there. It's that I hadn't been given necessarily that many platforms to share it. And if I think about it, a lot of the strings that we were pulling on back in 2018 definitely made their way into the book, but not just about me. This is about what does this way of thinking differently and creating differently our careers and our lives and our priorities and all this other stuff. How can it help others? So thank you. Oh my goodness. Thank you. And the title of that episode, (laughs) by the way, was why your career will be a Japanese bento box, not a three course French meal. (laughs) Which I love. I love that. I mean, what a great title. You, you picked it and well done. (laughs) Thank you. So perhaps we could start at a meta level, Mm -hmm. April, and why you wanted to write this book which was published in the second half of 2021, but which you had started working on well before the start of the pandemic and what those eight superpowers are for thriving in constant change. Sure. So I'll try to keep this brief. Interrupt me. We can make this a conversation in any way, shape or form. But taking the first question first, This book, it's interesting. I mean, it's called Flux, right? Everyone's like, right, welcome to my life. Welcome to the world. It is in flux. And I'm like, yep. Now, the interesting thing is, though, I didn't write this book about COVID. I didn't write it about 2020 or 2021 or 2022, even though these things are incredible validation and acceleration of some of these ideas. I wrote it more fundamentally about humans' relationships to change and uncertainty. And how much we struggle with not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what to do, feeling confused and afraid and anxious about uncertainty. Because when we look towards the future, there's more uncertainty, there's more change, there's more unknowns. And oh, no, that does not bode well if humans are not grooved to embrace it. And so there's this longer, I call it, the the book is both timely in that like people like, oh, right, flux right now here today. But it's this more timeless arc of human experience around how much change we're all having to deal with, how much uncertainty, but also this ever faster pace of change. And what does that portend? And so in this light, and I'll just make this part really, really brief, but I I like to say that I, I bring three lenses to change and sort of three different things drove me or encouraged me to to write it. One is most recently in this role as a futurist, right? Where I'm trying to help companies and organizations figure out like, where's the future heading and how do we fit into it, right? And in this capacity, I've just seen time and again, how every single organization and I would say every single person on the planet struggles with change in some way. Not necessarily in the same way, but there's just so much need and room for improvement. 
And then second is this global piece that I, that you mentioned just in terms of my privilege and the, the gratitude I have for having had and, and continuing to have a very international global career. It's exposed me to lots of different cultures and lots of different peoples and different ways of seeing and thinking and believing and working and all the rest. And, and what I saw there is that every single culture also struggles with change, but has developed different ways of seeing it and talking about it and figuring things out. And what I mean by this is there's just so much we can learn from one another if we can connect those dots. So part of what I want the book to do is connect those dots. And then last but not least, and I hope this this resonates at least in some way for some of the people listening in today. If I go back to like, when did my journey to flux begin? It's actually when I was in college. And I like to say that the third lens I bring is my human story, my lived experience with change and uncertainty. And for me, that story began when I was 20 and I was a junior in college and both of my parents died in a car accident. And I know I've just sort of inserted a really hard topic into the conversation. And I want to be really clear. I love talking about this and it's not fearful. It was a tragedy, but I'm not fearful of it. I've actually come to see it as one of the hardest things I endured, but one of the best things that actually led me to change how I saw myself and the future and what to do and how to make my way through. And really that sense of what do you do when you don't know what to do? Because in that instant, when I was 20, like everything I thought about the world and my future, it just kind of melted. I had no idea what I was supposed to do and how was I supposed to rebuild my family? What was I supposed to do about my career? Right. I mean, it was all up for grabs. And so I offer that because I never would have imagined that I would write a book about this back then. But I look back and I go, oh, yeah, I mean, this is all guided by my own journey of peeling the layers back of my own onion, so to speak, to figure out not only what do you do when you don't know what to do, but how do you do something that can be uniquely you and add value to others and the world? So, but you were also, if I may jump in, because you also listened to your gut and your intuition, April, as a young person and did not listen to the people who looked at you and said, why are you moving all over the place? Why are you studying this, that, and the other? You should just pick a lane and stay in that lane. Focus and climb that ladder. Now, yes, and thank you for bringing this up because I will say, and I always, I do want to give the caveat that well before my parents died, when I was five, I was interested in a lot of different things. And not in a scattered way. I just, I was curious about everything, right? What do I want to be when I grow up? Everything like, like, don't make me pick. That seems so strange. And then, so that was already there. And I, the seeds of seeing my career a bit differently and the seeds of not really seeing the ladder or the, the box that you're supposed to fit into as fitting me very well. But when they died, that added a whole other layer. And I'll, I'll frame it as it became very clear to me that I could die tomorrow. You could die tomorrow. Anybody I love, we, we all, no one knows how long we have. And I say this not to be morbid in any way, shape or form, but it has this ability to kind of crystallize. Like the question that I started asking myself at that time and have asked myself pretty much every day in some way, shape or form ever since is 
if I were to die tomorrow, what would the world, so not my ego, not social media, but the world, what would the world need me to do today? And it's this ability to kind of say, have I given life my all? And I can also say in the aftermath of my parents' accident, I had a lot of people with all the love in their heart, people who are very concerned about me and my well-being. And I will be grateful for that forever because I did have to figure it out. And I pretty much had to figure it out on my own in terms of like, no one was going to take responsibility for me. But I had professor, really well-meaning professors with your, with your credentials, you should go work at a consulting firm or an investment bank. And I remember being, and I say this with lots of respect for consulting firms and investment banks. This is not criticism. This is me as a 20-year-old saying, if I die tomorrow, does the world need another consultant or investment banker today? I'm like, no, no, that is not the best use of my time. And that is not what the world needs. There is something else I'm being called to do. But I was also stuck with the, I don't know what exactly what that thing is. I just know it's not this. And it became my responsibility to figure out what that thing is. And in the process, though, what I discovered is that it didn't have to fit into someone else's box. If I was willing to invest my time and sweat, do the hard work, but also I did have to push back on people, people who loved me, people who wanted what was best for me, but that I knew wasn't in my heart. And so I can also confide in this. This might've come up on our earlier conversation. I still remember early in my career, as in my twenties and exactly what you were echoing earlier, where people were like, what are you doing? Because instead of working at a consulting firm or an investment bank, I opted to go and guide hiking and biking trips in various places around the world. Paid me a fraction of what an investment bank would have paid me, but exposed me to the world. Allowed me to live for nearly four years without a permanent address with a backpack and a journal and a quest to better understand how the rest of the world lived so that I could better know how I could serve. And these colleagues that were like, you're a dilettante, you're escaping something, like, who are you to do this? You're, you're basically, your career is going to crash. And I would be like, I don't think they understand what I'm after here. I'm not after climbing a ladder. I'm not after just making a bunch of money. There's so much more to what's going on here. And several years passed and I ended up, you know, I went to grad school and I kind of got my, started getting my feet a bit more on the ground and then started developing these more unique career paths. And the very same colleagues, I will remember, I still remember, the day they came to me and the same people that had given me such a hard time and basically poo-pooed everything I was doing. And that at a really tender, raw time in my life, I still had to push back and say, no, you don't understand what I'm going for here. They came to me and they were like, oh, now we see what you're doing. Hey, how do we do that? And I remember being like, don't be so quick to judge what another person, how another person sees their career evolving. And from that point forward, it also gave me the confidence to be like, there are a bunch of different ways to think about your career, to design your career, to pursue your career, et cetera. And more and more, only one of them is this sort of ladder. And this ladder is not necessarily the best way for a lot of people to do it. <laughs> so anyway. Love that. And you have not built a ladder, but you have written a guidebook for how to do it. What are those eight superpowers for thriving in constant <laughs> exactly. change? So 
I'll do the overview of all eight and then we can dig into one in particular, but a couple others perhaps along the way. So the eight flux superpowers, the book itself flux. I just want to give give listeners a little um, context here. Flux is a fun word to say. We can riff on it in lots of different funny ways, but uh, it's both a noun and a verb. And so the word, the noun flux means continuous change. There's also a verb to flux means to learn to become fluid. So the world is in flux and we all need to learn how to flux. And central to the the book is this concept of a flux mindset, which is the ability to see all change, whether it's quote, good or bad change, whether it's expected or unexpected, especially the changes you didn't see coming, especially the changes you wish hadn't happened. It's the ability to see all of it as an opportunity to grow and to learn and to improve. And key to this, so you want to be able to develop a flux mindset so you can improve your relationship to change. And then your flux mindset helps you unlock what I call the eight flux superpowers. So each of these superpowers is a kind of skill or a discipline or a quote, how to thrive in constant change. So I'm going to give you an overview, but as I go through them, just keep in mind, these are a menu, not a syllabus. So you don't have to do one before two. You can look at just one or all eight. Doesn't matter. As I like to say, if you pick up my book, which I hope you do, but I like to tell people you can read the book backwards. It doesn't matter. Each of these superpowers stands on its own. You should read the introduction first. Um, (laughs) Yes. But then hop to whatever one, whatever one piques your curiosity the most. And curiosity is just so key here. Also, though, a lot of these superpowers, each of them in some way, kind of, again, pushes against a lot of what society has taught us. It goes against the grain of how we think life is supposed to be lived, because from what I can tell, and from a lot, what a lot of people are feeling and seeing these days, the world that we were taught we could and should expect to live in and our place in it doesn't really align with the world as it is today. And so each of the superpowers, as I like to say, even though they're counterintuitive, even though they're a little bit contrarian, some people might say, they're far more fit for a world and a future in flux. So from the top, very briefly, the first flux superpower, and I'm going to list them in the order that they show up in the book. The first one is run slower. Now, this is all about anxiety and burnout, but also how we make our best decisions. The second one is what I call see what's invisible. Now, this is all about identifying or discovering our blind spots, but also learning to see invisible sources of value, invisible insights, opportunities, reshaping your lens on the world. The third one is get lost. Now, this is all about stretching beyond our comfort zones and our relationship to the unknown. The fourth is what I call start with trust. And this is what I call the flux super, superpower because of all of them, everything in some way, shape or form comes back to trust. But this starting with trust is really about how we nurture human relationships and how we navigate change together. Because when it comes to navigating change well, it is done well together and nothing matters more than trust. The fifth one is what I call know you're enough. This is all about our obsession with more, but also our quest for true happiness. And I would say young people have gravitated just like magnets to this superpower also. So we can come back to it if you'd like. The sixth one, which is where we're heading, I'll steal some of my thunder right there, 
It is called Create Your Portfolio Career. This is all about how to design your career, your professional development, your professional identity in ways that are fit for a future of work that is in itself in flux. The seventh superpower is be all the more human. So this is all about our relationship with technology and the tension we face and that we're spending ever more time with our devices and yet ever less time with one another. And last but not least, the eighth flux superpower is let go of the future. I'm guessing some listeners just went, nope, that is too much. She, she lost, she lost me. <laughs> I want to be clear. Let go of the future is all about our relationship to control. And when I say let go, I do not mean giving up. I do not mean failure. I do not mean doomsdaying. If I wanted to make it a little bit longer, but my publisher wouldn't let me, it would be, we need to let go of our obsession with being able to predict and control the future because no such thing exists and we're making ourselves mostly crazy. So that is a recap of all eight. Excellent. So let us, as you've already foreshadowed, (laughs) dig into chapter six, create your portfolio career. What does a portfolio career look like, April? And why is it something that we want to curate rather than follow, as in follow a path? Or I would say pursue, (laughs) right? But yeah, so let's tee this up very big picture. Think about what most people today, and I would say for the last several decades, at least, at least perhaps generations to some degree have been taught about where success is to be found and what your professional future is supposed to look like. It usually goes something like this. Study hard, get good grades, go to college, get good grades there too, get a good job, do said job for a long time, climb the ladder, success is at the top of it, retire. It's a very linear path. Study, work, retire. Success is at the top of a ladder, which is sort of one directional, unilateral, straight, not a lot of room for veering off of it. You fall off the ladder, you, at least in the real world, if you fall off a ladder, you could die and rung by rung by rung, lockstep fashion. Every single point of that journey is cracking today. Study, work, retire is blowing up. Not only, and this is happening for a few different force, a few different reasons. I would say, first and foremost, individuals are waking up saying, that's it? That's it? Wait, I'm supposed to climb a ladder and be a sort of robot or automaton or do what other people want me to do? And like, okay, isn't there more to life than that? They're looking around and saying, I see a lot of people on the ladder who aren't that happy. There are a lot of people on the ladder who are actively saying, I'm not happy. And it's interesting. We can talk about the Great Resignation. Obviously, my book was written before the Great Resignation, but it totally foreshadows it. And as a futurist, the Great Resignation, just to be clear, it's not a surprise to me. Not at all in any way, shape or form. These are forces that have been playing out for the last several decades. We knew something was going to crack or break. We knew the system writ large wasn't sustainable. We just didn't know exactly what was going to be the catalyst. Then you've got companies who are trying to figure out what the future of work looks like and are always trying to cut costs and 
these days I would say they're trying to attract talent, but they're still using the same kind of marketing shtick, which is not really going to see people for fully who they are. And we also know that automation is out there. And despite whatever any employer says, if technology can do business better than a human, chances are like there's always this, this degree of uncertainty. And I know this sounds like really bitter medicine, but I just want to put it out there insofar as you have a job. Any person has a job that someone else gives them. Even if you love your job, even if you're really good at your job, even if you totally see your future at this company and like, it's awesome. If it is a job that someone gave you, that job is always at risk of being taken away from you. And that's just the reality of the workplace we live in today. And so that too is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. So you've got all of these forces, you've got individuals, you've got organizations, and then you have technology, not just automation, but you also have technology that's making it easier to rethink your career, to earn income in more ways, to contribute to society in more ways than has ever been possible before. So you've got this perfect storm of everyone saying like the whole thing, the whole equation needs to be rewritten. And yet we still think and talk and conceive of our careers in terms of this linear ladder path model. And I'm looking at this going, this makes no sense whatsoever, but there is something out there that works a lot better and it's been around for a long time, but it was stigmatized for a long time. It wasn't talked about for a long time. We didn't have terms for it for a long time, but I now look back and I go, this is what I was feeling when I was five years old. I just didn't think it would play out. I couldn't have imagined how it would play out. And it is this notion of rather than seeing your career as a singular path to pursue or a ladder to climb, your career looks more like a portfolio to curate, to create, to curate, just like an artist would or an investor would. And so to your question about what does a portfolio career look like, one of the beautiful things is it doesn't have a one size fits all cookie cutter look. Each person's portfolio can be different, but I'll, I'll come back to the basics in a minute. But I just want us to consider for a minute what kinds of portfolios are out there and that we might, that you take inspiration from and two that are, are, are quite common, artists have portfolios, right? What's in an artist's portfolio? Their very best work, the things they're most proud of. What's in an investor's portfolio? Usually a bunch of different investments and why there are different investments. One is you want to diversify, but you also want to mitigate risk. So you have a portfolio to make wise, sound investments over a long period of time. So if we come back to one's own career portfolio, easiest way to put it is it is so much more than your resume, right? So think about what's allowed on, think about your resume in general, your CV. Some information is expected to be on it. And if it's not, it's a red flag. And other information, like anything about your personal life, is not allowed on your resume, not supposed to be there. That is just so strange to me. If what we're trying to do these days is show up as fully human and bring our best selves to work, how can we bring our best selves to work if we're stuck in this little box that's called our resume versus a portfolio? So again, think of a portfolio. Some people like to have like a, a bowl. Some people like to have like a folder, but your container, your portfolio contains everything you like to do, you're good at, that can help others. So it's everything that's on your resume, but it's also all of those things that make you, you, whether or not you're paid for them, whether or not they come with a title, 
My favorite example for adults, at least, is parenting skills. Parenting skills, not allowed on a resume. And by the way, if you take time out to raise your family, red flag, whoa, what happened there? That is so backwards. Parenting skills are some of the best, most valuable skills for the workplace. And there's no more important work than taking time out to raise your family. So a portfolio is all about those parenting skills are in it. Volunteer roles are in it. Challenges that you've experienced that have affected how you see the world. And again, whether or not you've ever had a job at all. So punchline here, and I know I've been going on for a little bit here, but everyone who's listening in, every single one of you has a portfolio right now, today. You may just not realize it. You've anticipated. I was going to say you've anticipated my next question, which is, so what does that portfolio look like in the very beginning? Let's say for a college senior who'll be graduating in the spring of 2022. Yeah. So imagine, and, and it is helpful. I, I should also just clarify, I'm not like anti-resume. I'm not saying that resumes are like, that they suck. No, resumes are useful. Resumes are incomplete. Resumes only show a slice of who you are. So it is helpful. You, you can start with your resume and then look at it and say, what's here and what's missing? So think about, and, and sometimes this can be helpful interview prep. This is also extremely valuable for anybody who's planning or desires to launch their own venture at some point. But what you're really looking at, and you sort of want to take an inventory for first step of what is in your portfolio today. Again, you may not even realize you have a portfolio, but you do. And so where do you start? And you begin by putting every single skill that you have. And again, whether you learned it in a job or whether you learned, I find amongst young people too, often things come up like, oh, I had to babysit my siblings. Oh, I had to help my family in this particular way, or I had chores, or I needed to tend to extended family, or often it also comes up, I needed to help, or I needed to earn income for the family. And you may have had a quote job and you may have just done odd jobs, like all of that right in your portfolio, any kind of leadership role. And again, leadership Everyone is a leader in some way. Do not think that if you weren't the CEO or executive director of this program that you're not, you are. Any community organization, any school organization you've participated in, any kind of leadership role you might have taken within your classes, group work, collaboration, giving talks, researching, you name it, like all of these things. And again, some of them do show up in your resume, but your portfolio, I'm sort of foreshadowing a little bit. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're creating, you're writing a much richer, fuller narrative story of who you are that will help you shine in different ways, in more ways, not just in job interviews, but it actually helps you better identify what in the world do I want to do with my future anyway? So how do you think students who are graduating in 2022 should be thinking about that first job? That first step. What a great question. Well, one thing, and this came up in a conversation recently, and again, advantages and disadvantages of the great resignation and all the flux we are in and everything else. Graduating seniors are in a very fortunate position. If you want a job, there are jobs. I would encourage no one to take that for granted. You actually have more choice, more opportunity than I think a lot of graduating classes have had for a very, very long time. 
that's super exciting. Gives you a little more flexibility too. You don't have to take the first job you get, presumably. I would encourage, so here's where it gets so interesting. The hardest, I often find that the hardest step for many people of different ages to take is to acknowledge that it's not about a ladder. And I think a lot of our brains are like, it's not about a ladder. It's not about a ladder. And yet we're bombarded every day with messages about get on a ladder, get on a ladder. If we can let go of it has to be a ladder, all of a sudden you start looking at what's my first job? What do I want to do? You want to go as broad as you possibly can in terms of you want to follow your curiosity. You want to recognize that this first job is not your be all end all. It is far more likely than not that it ends up being not what you do long term, but that it teaches you valuable skills about humans, about human relationships, about meaning, about purpose. I hope it actually teaches you some aspect of what you definitely don't want to do and a lot of what you do. All of these things are, are equally valuable. And so even when I go back and I had, I had jobs always from, I, well, money was tight in my household growing up. And so I, I started my first venture when I was eight. I was, I was sewing clothes and selling clothes when I was in high school. So I was always, I had been have I had odd jobs, right? I didn't have like a job, but I was earning income from a young age. And so just to make ends meet, and if I wanted anything, it was going to be up to me. Um, but then obviously my parents died and all of a sudden what it meant to be self-sufficient started to matter in very different ways. But also, so I want to say I had jobs prior. My first job was not guiding hiking and biking trips, but as a graduating senior, my first job post-graduation, I had a fellowship for one year. And then my first job was guiding these trips. And again, though, I want to go back. Everyone's saying, go to a consulting firm, go to a consulting firm, go to a consulting firm. And I was like, no. So if I were to line up my job guiding hiking trips against traditional criteria, it would have met pretty much none of them other than the travel. Will I get global exposure? Yes. Because I knew I wanted an international career. Was I going to make a bunch of money? No. Was I going to go to an office? No. Was I going to meet? Well, I did meet some very important, interesting, amazing people who changed my life on these trips. But was I going to, was that a guarantee? No. Was I going to get to dress up in a business suit? No. I was actually going to wear shorts and a t-shirt every day. Like no criteria, right? And yet I listened to my heart. I listened to my soul. I said, what is, how do I feel when I imagine doing this? And it was like every cell in my body lit on fire. And I was like, I think that matters a lot more. Now I do want to be clear. Again, I had to be self-sufficient. I couldn't, it wasn't saying I'm just going to go. I, I could not have volunteered for four years. I'm not saying for a minute that money doesn't matter. What I am saying is money matters I won't say less. It matters in very different ways than we think it will. So I had to, I had to be able to net out financially how this was going to work. So the way I put it, I was not earning anything close to enough money to be able to pay a mortgage, raise a family. Right. But I was like, I'm not planning on having a family anytime soon. Also, what I heard from a lot of people is, again, you're escaping, you're whatever. But people also ask me, how can you afford how can you afford to do this? And I was like, hmm, what you do not realize is that my overhead, my living costs just plummeted to about zero. My employer pays for me to get to these countries. 
It pays for my accommodation while I'm traveling. And then even though, yes, I'm not banking lots and lots of money, it provided ample. What I ended up doing basically was working nonstop for about seven months each year because you're usually not hiking and biking in January. It's kind of wet and cold and icky, at least in the markets I was working. I earned plenty of money, worked seven months of the year, and then had enough income to go and travel for the other five. But here's the hook. The cost of living in the places I was traveling was so much lower than it ever would have been in the United States. So it's fascinating, again, challenging these paradigms, challenging these assumptions and expectations. First and foremost is that notice what roles, what jobs, what opportunities light your soul on fire, and then get really creative. Think through some of the financial logistical implications, but use it as an opportunity, as a time to do a lot of experimenting in that regard. Okay. Are you ready for this, April? Yeah, I'm ready. I think (laughs) what what I landed on as the metaphor that I teach the students I coach is that they should be like a mad scientist in a laboratory Mm, who has her test tubes and those goofy goggles on and the Bunsen burner, because what does a mad scientist do? Well, she's trying to find the right formula. So she experiments and she's putting chemicals in and sometimes it blows up in her face and she's covered in soot. And ultimately she finds the right formula. And the only way that these young people can screw up is by not doing. Correct. And I love that. I love. So I'm also I'll add to this mad scientist. Sometimes there's a little bit of like alchemy. So you're like an alchemist and alchemy. If you're not familiar with the term, it's like the ability to turn things into gold. Yep. Paulo Coelho wrote the book, but also just if we look historically, alchemy was one of the most powerful vocations one could have. It was the ability to turn substances into gold, among other things. But like, wow. And it gets a little bit, there's a mystical side to alchemy and all this other stuff, but like it's the mad scientist alchemist. What I love though that you brought up, you're wearing your goggles. You've got gloves on if need be. You know that something's are more likely than not to combust, perhaps kind of, you know, like what you're, you're experimenting. Cause I continued, there was this whole sense of like, where do I draw the line? And I can say this too, because, because my situation, I had to take responsibility for myself. Like if something screwed up, I didn't have a home to go home to. I mean, I had extended family. I had people that cared about me. I didn't have my sounding boards. I had to be really, I had to be really responsible. And there's a difference between experimenting and being downright foolish. I wanted to experiment as much as I possibly could, and I didn't want to be stupid. So I knew that I needed to wear goggles. I knew that I needed to have some gloves. But once those goggles were on, bring it. Like, what more can we mix together? So it's a perfect analogy, though, because I can get pushback sometimes of like, oh, it's just so like kumbaya almost, or you're just... You're in some like other world. I'm like, no, no, you have a lot more latitude to think about what kinds of jobs, opportunities, ways of constructing, not your career, but even your year, your annual cycle, your routine. You have a lot more flexibility to be more creative about that. And you also have more ability, I think, to to launch your own ventures, to spend time in different ways, all of that. Yes. And in fact, in the book, you say if you're 20 years old, there's little reason why you should not have already hung your young professional 
shingle online. Correct. The way I often tee this up is it's never, ever, categorically, it has never been easier or cheaper to be your own boss, to start your own business. You can do so effectively for zero. I mean, maybe a website hosting, you need 10 bucks a year to host your domain. You might need a little bit of help with website design, although I think most 20 somethings can at least get started with a website. Like it's not hard. And And you're saying this. Oh, I'm sorry. I I was just going to say, and you're not just saying, hey, business majors, this is a good idea. You're saying it doesn't matter what your major is. This is part of building your skills for portfolio. Your portfolio. Go into your portfolio. Go into the things you care most about. Imagine, I mean, I've often framed it this way. What would your, and just consider anyone who's listening, what would your dream job be? Now, I'm hoping that at least for a few people, they're like, yeah, it doesn't exist right now. Like, that's the problem. I'm like, great. Why don't you go create it? Oh, okay. Hang that shingle online. And it's not, to be clear, it doesn't have to be a full-time job. It doesn't have to be a full-time salary. It's an experiment. But I would love, and the, the, the ones that I love the most, like, okay, you're a history major. You happen to love music. You happen to speak a different, a foreign language. Hang up a shingle saying, I'm a musician who can work in this language, whatever. Take your pick of things in your portfolio that you care deeply about that would be part of your dream job. Go hang out a shingle, see how it goes. There's zero down, zero downside of doing so. And you just might find other people who are interested. You just might find other people to work with. You just might find there's actually a business in the making, but you don't have to. That again, coming back to a different theme, more on the letting go part of things. You don't have to treat this like it has to be perfect the first time or that it's going to be forever. It's an experiment. The cool thing is if experiments work, you tend to like like them and like continue with them. And that's a great thing because it didn't exist before. If you don't, if they don't work out, you're like, oh, well, I, I tried it and it didn't work, but I did learn some stuff and it informed what my next experiment might be. But there's no downside whatsoever. And I will say too, if you're kind of gunning for a job and all the rest, More and more employers, they want to hear. They do not want people who have never failed. They do not want people for whom everything has come easy. They do not want people who haven't had to do some soul searching. That's where growth happens. So consider your experimentation in that light too. You need to have at least one story that you can be like, here's a time I totally didn't get it right. And here's what I learned. And here's where it led me. Gets you ready for that final or that major question during job interviews (laughs) that they always want to know. So one of the things that has really struck me, April, and I know that this is something that you have given a lot of thought to because you touch on it in the book, and that is this disconnect between the way that higher ed is educating the young people today and really teaching them to brand themselves by their major, which leads to more siloed thinking, which I believe is one of the main reasons that so many liberal arts majors are stuck and cannot think about how to use their degree because they are stuck in that linear mindset because of the way that their professors have taught them to self-identify. 
Yeah. No, there is, there's a whole other, probably a whole other episode <laughs> and for a different kind of audience. Cause I'm sure that some people, some, some students are like, oh my gosh, that's a problem. It is a problem for universities, colleges, educational institutions. It's a problem for professors and faculty. It's a problem for career services centers. And one of the things, and I've been doing some work along these lines, hope to do a whole lot more, but you're exactly right. Yeah. So if you're listening that if, if this describes you, I want to assure you there is so much more, so many more different avenues and options than what you're hearing from professors or from career services centers. I have learned that there are a handful, not many, but career services centers are in a really tight spot these days because they're still trying to prepare students for a future of work that, sorry, doesn't exist. It's all about jobs, recruiting on campus, jobs, jobs, jobs. I'm like, whoa, completely out of touch with the reality of the future of work. Some, however, are realizing at least that it's not just about jobs and work. They're rebranding themselves as life design centers. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Now, if it's just a branding stint, a marketing stint, but the same thing when you get there, the same center, we still have, a same, we still have the same problem. But I would say, if your university, for example, doesn't have anything around, any offerings around independent career, want to launch your own venture. If they don't have anything around, I would say, portfolio careers or thinking more holistically about your career, I would challenge them immediately and say, where are you even in touch with reality? What could we offer? Now, here's an idea. Maybe you as a student at a university want to be the one to launch that thing. Imagine if your university was like, well, what do you mean? And you were like, let me come tell you, let me teach a group of students. That right there would be an interesting experiment of its own. But there is systemically, when we talk about this from a, an educational systems perspective, there are all kinds of disconnects and changes that need to be made, both in terms of how we prepare and what we're thinking about upon graduation, but also even things like curriculum. Where are financial literacy classes? in colleges, right? Colleges assume that students learn that at home. Parents assume that they learn that at school. And it, in the process, nobody, nobody gets it. Nobody learns. I shouldn't say nobody learns, but it's very ad hoc and messy. And there's no general level of knowledge or sophistication when it comes to that. So this is one of those things. And I was a liberal arts major. Now, in my case, I double majored and I did do one major for where I was like, well, it's broadly related to what I'm interested in. And it was international studies, surprise, surprise. So had a bit of a mix of political science and economics and history. And then I did art history because I love art, art history, but I knew that my career was unlikely to be there, to be in that field. But it wasn't just art history. I was really interested in architecture. So I actually customized that degree. I did art history, but 80% of my classes and research was on architecture because I had also learned, I thought I wanted to be an architect. And then I learned I didn't want to be an architect, but I still loved architecture. So I was trying to like basically bridge all these different gaps, but you I was bit, creating your own portfolio. April. My Well, and this was, so I want to be clear too. I'm talking a lot about career portfolios, portfolio of the careers. We can sort of use those terms interchangeably, but from a career perspective, the precursor to a, a portfolio career is your skills portfolio, which can include all of your classes, but it also includes all of the skills that you've learned outside of academia. And that's everything from teamwork and skills you might have learned playing sports 
or playing music. It's discipline, it's leadership, it's all these different things. But yes, in my college career, college time, I was curating my portfolio. It was art history. I was not thinking in terms of career at that time, but it absolutely bleeds one into the other. And I do think this is more of a me getting on a soapbox again, but for all of the emphasis of like, but what does this mean for my career? What does this mean? And am I going to take all of the right classes in every term and get it just right so that I get that job at Google or whatever it is? Whoa, stop right there and like get off whatever train you're on because that's not the whole purpose of college. Make sure that you take at least one, hopefully several classes that simply pique your curiosity. You are not going to get a job at fill in your blank of company simply because you took that one class in that one semester. Chances are, and this was my case, I'll actually use the exact classes I took. I got questions like, what led you to take a class on Japanese literature? Because I did. I took a class on Japanese literature because I was like, again, this lights, my, this lights me on fire. I think Japan is an interesting place and why not? Did I ever use? No, I didn't. Did it actually open more doors than any other class in macroeconomics or international? No, Japanese literature. I took another class on Islamic art. Now, do I, does my work have anything to do with the world of Islam today? Just in general, it's like I've worked a little bit in the region, but that taught me so much more about the history and what we're looking at in the world and geopolitics and creativity and different cultures views on what beauty is. And, and like, that's what actually shows up in interviews. It wasn't the, whatever your equivalent is of that. And it's more common in the liberal arts than it is in the hard and social sciences. But again, and maybe more broadly where we should take this and it's, it kind of comes full circle. I mentioned earlier, this idea of a, your narrative. And then ultimately when you're presenting yourself for any job, any role, any opportunity writ large, you need to be able to tell your story. And when we come at our stories, our life stories, our college stories, when we come from the perspective of, I talk about what's on my resume, you tell a really narrow, often shallow story. Think about pulling stories, plural, from your portfolio, your liberal arts degree. What did it teach you? And again, whatever kind of, is it history? Is it anthropology? Is it music? Is it more social? In the social sciences, it could also be sociology, psychology. Some of these disciplines also bleed between science and humanities. Those are some of the most valuable ones out there. But can you translate what you studied into a narrative that explains how you ended up, what brings you to today, and what your views of the world and your role in it and what you'd like to contribute moving forward. And so career services are only seeing a slice of this too. And I, I apologize here because I'm like, yeah, there's some of this that, that you're going to have you, and I say this as to, to listeners, as an individual that you're going to have to take responsibility for. But the difference is, and here going back to portfolio versus career paths, unlike a job that anyone can give to you, but also take away from you, your portfolio is yours forever. No one can take it away from you. You are responsible for it, but it is yours. And so similarly, your narrative, if I want to put a different kind of spin on this, think about the kind of life that you want to live. Think about the story of that life. Do you want to live a life that someone else 
wrote for you and is saying, here's your life, go live it, right? That's very much the career ladder kind of situation. You get a job, here's what you're going to do. There you go, there's your life. Versus do you actually want to write your own? Do you want to be the author of your own life script? Do you want to, and if you do, that implies you have to be responsible for writing it. But the benefits of doing so mean actually taking agency and control of your life and your professional identity and how all of this plays out in the future. So before I say goodbye, you mentioned how it plays out in the future. Your last chapter, the eighth superpower is letting go of the future. Mm -hmm. How can college students kind of mentally prepare themselves to both at one and the same time, take control of their future narrative, or at least the beginning of that narrative and let go of the control that's involved. And I will just be really clear. I know that when you're 20, you hear something like letting go and you're like of the future. That's like the rest of my life. Like, what are you saying? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I am. And to be clear, I am not saying don't have goals. I'm not saying don't strive. Don't try to achieve things in life. Absolutely. What we're looking at, again, relationship to control. We have been fed this diet that has led us to believe, convinced us that humans somehow can control the future, engineer the future, predict the future. Nothing is further from the truth. It always has been this way. I think we're just kind of waking up to it right now. What we're after is just an illusion of control. No one has ever been able to predict the future. No one's ever going to be able to. Also, there's not one future. It's not like written in sand somewhere. There are many different possible futures. And part of what we're trying to do today is prepare. Rather than trying to predict the future as if it's one thing, we need to prepare ourselves for many different possible futures. And so when I say let go of the future, let go of that thing you think that one singular future, because by the way, in your mind, it has to be that one future because it's only that future that goes your way. Anything else that happens from that, oh no, I'm going to be knocked off my, knocked off my balance. Things aren't going to work out. No, no, actually things are going to work out. <laughs> so it's, le- it's getting out of our own way in order, as I like to say, to, to let better futures emerge. So I know that sounds a little bit woo-woo, but one thing I think if you're 20 or 22 or 25, and not that it's all about age and wisdom and that sort of thing, but I can assure you that the longer you live, the more you are going to learn that the more you try to cling onto and grasp onto something you can't control, including your career, the more miserable that clinging and grasping is going to make you. When you can let go of, it has to be this one way, because if it's not, then my life is in a shambles. When you can let go, here's, here's the really interesting kind of head fake. People who are able to let go are actually the ones who have the most power, the ones who have the most freedom, and who often have a sense of peace. When you let go of something, of something that you can't control, all of a sudden you realize, oh, I have space and oxygen to invest in things I can control. Like, what do I do in this particular moment? Not what is my career going to be 10 years from now? And so I just want to encourage letting go is actually really freeing. And it's not saying that 
you don't have goals or don't want to get somewhere over time. It's just saying that it doesn't have to work out in this one way because the fact is that's not how life works. And the sooner, the earlier, the younger we can learn that lesson, the more flourishing the rest of your life can be. What a beautiful note on which to end. And frankly, the career that you may have two years, five years, 12 years from now, that industry may not yet exist. Exactly. So yeah. this, is, this is all about taking a deep breath and not stressing about things you can't control anyway. Oh. April's book, which I highly, highly recommend, is called Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. April, you are such an incredible futurist. I mean, I really, I have lived it myself, just having spoken with you a little over three years ago and seeing how our world has changed already, seeing how my own life has changed, how that parallels so much of what you have talked about in this fabulous book. I just want to thank you so much for making time for coffee again with me and the T4C community. This was just wonderful. Thank you so very much. And gratitude reciprocated. One fun footnote, futurist. Futurist did not exist as a discipline, as a profession at all when I graduated. And yet I can't imagine my life without it. If I had shut myself off and said, nope, never would have this door I didn't even know was there and has been among the most rewarding. So think of your your version of what a futurist might be and be prepared for many different possible futures. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.